Well, good morning, Bentry family. Uh, I want to start off the series a little bit differently than we usually do. And uh, I want to start with a series of kind of three stories. These are not biblical stories. Just consider these three tiny beginnings uh, to say she had been through a rough year. Well, that would have been an understatement. I mean, the diagnosis rung in her ear as she heard the big C word from the doctor's office. Cancer was the result. How could God allow this, she thought. I mean, it, it seemed like everything was going her way before this. She'd gotten promotions. She had with this relationship she was in. And then the bills started to pile up. Then the relationship went away. I mean, it, it was as if she was standing alone, like God had just left her. Her friends kept on tabs on her, uh, friends from the church, friends from the office. And her Christian friends would say, how is your relationship with God? And she would say, oh, he's fine. He, he, you know, it, it's great. God is so good. And she'd say it with feeling, but Jesus, she, it was not good in her mind. The truth was it had been months since she had really opened her Bible in a daily time studying it. It had been months since she had spent some time with God. It seemed like when she did, it had been dry. He seemed distant. It wasn't like it used to be. Poof. All of a sudden, it was like he was gone. It was not that she intended to not go to church, but after she quit reading her Bible, one weekend turned into two, and two would turn into three, and three would turn into a couple of months. I mean, can you identify with this story? She would think, God, I, I feel so far from you. Or how about this one? I've been a youth leader before, believe it or not. And it was really good. I had been part of this awesome team from my church that just poured Jesus into these teenagers. And to tell you the truth, when I first started, I thought, teenagers, ah, I can't be around them. But it had been really good, not just with the teenagers, but the, the group of men and women I did ministry with. It hadn't been bad. And man, seeing life changes in those kids, pouring Jesus in them. Man, it was just something I, I, I loved. And seeing them to start to love Jesus and not only be able to read the Bible, but understand it. Wow, that had been five years ago. And I mean, it's not like I intended to get so busy. It started with a trip and I, I was called out of the office two or three weeks in a row. And then we had that vacation and sports and camping. You know how it is. I, they just get in the way. I mean, those good old days, I was closer to Jesus back then. Well, I make it to church on Sundays when I can. I, I'll get back soon to that thing, uh, and, and I'll get to that place. I used to be serving Jesus. Uh, I, I'll be there next week. Well, the week after that, because I've got that thing due. Okay, third story. You ready? It started out innocently enough. I was 11 years old. I was raised in a Christian family, but rummaging around in the attic, uh, being 11 years old, the pictures I saw made me feel something different. I was disgusted and yet drawn to these pictures of nude women. And I thought, I can't do this. I'm, I'm a Christian. And, but wow, I guess, I guess I never really stopped from that point on. It, it was just everywhere. I would stop for months at a time, but then something difficult would happen. I'd feel bad about myself and an argument with my wife. and It's like, I love Jesus. I hate this addiction. I, 
I, I love it too. But it's just as long as I keep this thing hidden, then no one knows. I, I think I could get by. I mean, I know I'll get to heaven. I love Jesus. I'm saved. Hey, kids, it's time to get in the car to go to church. Honey, we've got to be there. Pastor Paul said to get there early. Three stories this morning to start at our time. Three lives, all three Christians, all three stuck in their spiritual growth. All three have lost this spiritual ground. They have lost the direction. They've lost a momentum. They are not where they used to be uh, with Jesus, and they know it. They sense it. Man, I could tell you as a pastor, story after story similar to this, and maybe yours is exactly one of these. Maybe it's similar to one of these, or maybe it's something totally different. But the question is for you Christians. Hearing my voice, are you as close to Jesus in your relationship right now than you have been in the past? Yes or no? Like, write the answer down here. That's not for me on this blank. It's for you. Answer this question. Are you following Jesus as closely as you did in the past? Are you following Jesus as closely as you did in the past? You don't have to write anything else, just yes or no. Like, have you lost spiritual ground for any reason? Either recently or maybe it's been years ago, right? Or is it a recent thing or is it a thing that's been many years in the making? Think through that. Now, you can ask yourself that, and, and I'm assuming that the answer is, is just immediately clear to you if you really think about it. But what may not be as clear is is the reason why. Why? And what God thinks and what He may be doing in your life in the background may not be as clear either. And what He may be on planning with doing with your life in the future, what He has for your future is probably not real clear yet. Because if you are as close to Jesus as you have been in your past and you're growing spiritually or you have lost ground, there are lessons that we can learn from this, this book, this Bible. That's why we study it, because this changes lives. We can reclaim the promises of God as being one of His people through Jesus and His atoning work on the cross. We can reclaim that. The question that all three of these people want to know is, how do I get back to where I used to be? How can I grow? Now, they may couch it in different terms, but that's what they want to know. This new series is called Reclaim, and it's based on the idea of getting back to that place of serving, of loving, of sensing Jesus and being a part of his church. It's getting that thing back of that sensing or sensing even knowing is what I'm talking about. And although I'm certainly not perfect, but that I am being used by Jesus to build his church, getting that sense back. And I'm not alone. That sense that I have uh, as a church family, uh, that sense that God is using me to give his people, uh, those brothers and sisters around me, bringing them closer to God too, to reclaim ground, not just as an individual, but as a church. And all together, we are being used together then to change the world. That's how church is supposed to work. Now, I've been looking forward to this series for quite some time now. And it's based on this Old Testament book of Ezra. 
you and I are going to get to know the book of Ezra really, really well. But also we're going to get to know the dude, Ezra himself, really well. This, and a host of other characters that you may know and may not know and how they play into it. But you're going to see them get back to this place of this relationship with God. And we're going to see where God wants to take us. Even, even if we are growing in our faith, we're going to show you how to grow faster and become everything that God designed you to be. Now this Sunday is the start of this new series. And we're going to be jumping around quite a bit. Uh, and it's a little different because we'll get to Ezra, but I really want you to see how huge these uh, these pieces of Ezra play in. And really, this is a part of the Bible that is probably one of the most dark as far as just confusing. You just don't know where it's at, most people. So we'll do that. We'll get this thing set. Well, let's get started with a time of prayer. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Mm. God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, your name is great and greatly to be praised. It's great without us, but we want to see your name be great in our midst today through your words. We want to know you more, God. Father, there are people in this room that have lost ground spiritually. They are not where they used to be for whatever reason. God, our prayer is that through the power of your Holy Spirit working through your word, you would just bring them back not only to reclaim the spiritual ground that they have lost, but the spiritual ground you want them to take from the enemy. God, I pray against any ideas of shame or hopelessness or sadness, but give us this spirit and an attitude of humble grace to receive that grace. We want to look forward as your children to become all that you want us to become. Father, help us to not listen to the lies of the enemy that may be ringing in our ears today, but keep our eyes and ears focused on you. It is in the great name of Jesus Christ we all prayed and said, amen. Well, get your Bibles out, your notes out, and a little bit of coffee, amen? Let's get the coffee going here. We study the Bible. Why is that? Well, we want to know the setting, we want to know the context, we, we want to know all that stuff. Why is that? Because we want to understand it. Now, there's nothing wrong with quoting specific individual verses. I see that all the time on social media. But the danger is that if we only know a specific verse and not the context of why it's there, of why it was written, who it was written to, why it was being written, we may attach the wrong meaning to the verse, and that's dangerous. In other words, even though we might know a scripture by heart, we might get the meaning and purpose of it wrong. So this week, let's do this. Let's spend our time in context mainly, and you see how this book is coming together. Make sense? Ezra, it's a fairly short book in the Old Testament. If you're looking for it, it's in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and it comes right uh, after, uh, or it comes right before a book called Nehemiah. But there, there are uh, two books. Now, back in the old days, they were in the uh, Old Testament time, they were one book. They were Ezra and Nehemiah together. It still flows together. There's nothing lost. But they separated those books in the early church history. In the future, 
we'll continue this series. Uh, maybe next year we'll call it like Reclaim Nehemiah because it's the same story that keeps going. Uh, but we'll get to that uh, in the future. The book of Ezra is really a cool book. It's both a book of history, but also a book of prophecy coming true. And you're going to see that today. The Bible has really several different genres of styles of books. Like there's poetry books, there's prose, there's history books like Ezra. Then there's prophecy books that we'll read a little bit from today. Then there's uh, apocalyptic kind of books like Revelation we've studied or Ezekiel or Daniel. Now why study this? Why study this? The same reason we study all of Scripture. Look at this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Here it is. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, this is important to understand why we study Scripture and study it in context because of how we study it, what it's true. We study all of Scripture because all of Scripture is inspired by God. Someone say amen to that. That's a huge truth. And all of Scripture is profitable, but what does it say it's profitable for to study? Well, it says teaching for rebuking, like when you're, you're off in sin. So teaching is just teaching. You know what that is. But rebuking, getting you, and then for correcting, when you have the wrong thing that you're thinking, and then for training in righteousness. Righteousness or holiness is literally being set apart. All that is designed for us to become whole or complete so that the man of God may be complete for equipped for every good work. In other words, at the end of the day, you were created for good works. And this equips you and me. In other words, each part of Scripture is there for a reason. And without it, we are missing part of our training. We are incomplete. Make sense? So we think about the book of Ezra as we think about it and we prepare to study it so that we can be made complete. We ask who wrote it, right? Well, biblical scholars, they disagree on this a little bit, but clearly much of it, and quite possibly all of it, I think all of it, uh, is written by this guy, Ezra. And even the book of Nehemiah is written by Ezra. He compiled large parts of the what we think of as the Old Testament. As well, the book just before Ezra, if you'll look, uh, called Second Chronicles, another history book, the Chronicles of the Kings, those were that was probably written by Ezra as well. We think that because that book ends with the same verse, verses that Ezra begins with, almost word for word. So who was this Ezra and why did he write the book? The short answer is that he was a leading priest, a scribe of the holy text of the scripture. What it meant is that he was able to read the actual text. He was allowed to touch it, get it open, and to read it. And then he was a scribe, meant he, he copied it, not word for word. And you go, oh, I thought it was better than that. It is letter for letter. He would look at a letter and write it. He had memorized the entire uh, Torah. So Ezra 
he also teaches other guys to do that, and he's a leading official in the government. I'll show you that because he has official letters from these kings. So Ezra writes uh, of history before his time all the way through the end of his life. That would be Nehemiah. So what was this time? A very unique time in Israel's history. We'll get to this, but the short answer is this, that he was a, uh, in the, per, uh, the Persian capital of Persia, a foreign government controlled the Jewish people. They were in captivity in what is now Iran. In the big picture, this was after the time of Israel and Judah. You remember they existed as a sovereign country uh, under King David and King Solomon. They had 12 tribes in one country, and it was a wealthy, powerful country. But through the long decline of the kings that followed King Solomon and King David, the people had turned their backs on God. They had become sinful. They sought after foreign gods, little g-gods, and they sinned, awful sins. The country of Israel had been split into two. Ten tribes in the north called Israel, two tribes in the south called Judah. Judah. Both of them turned their backs on God's law over time. God had sent prophet after prophet to warn the kings and the people to preach to them, turn back to God, quit sinning, repent. And sometimes there would be a revival of faith, at least in Judah. There were even some kings in the south that were good. But eventually, they simply would not listen to God anymore. Their hearts had become cold. Now check out this warning from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 20, 25. Jeremiah says, therefore, this is what the Lord of the armies says, because you have not obeyed my words. I am going to send for a family of uh, families of the north. Now look, he's saying, I'm going to send families. I'm going to send a different people from the north, north of Israel. That is the Lord's declaration. And send for, look at this, my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You're going to want to underline my servant a couple of times. My servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And I will bring them against this land, against its resident, and against these surrounding nations. Do you understand what it's saying? He's saying, look, I'm going to gather these people from the north, these pagan people, these sinful people, and I'm going to bring them to this land and destroy it. And I will completely destroy them, talking about Israel right now, and make them, Israel, an example of horror and scorn and ruins forever. He says, I will eliminate, watch what it says, the sound of joys, joy and gladness from them, the voice of the groom and the bride, and the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. Won't even be lights in the city. This whole land will become a desolate ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. This is huge. Remember that 70 years. When the 70 years were completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. Now, do you see what's happening? He brought one group in to punish the Hebrew nation. Now he's saying, because this group that I brought in did that, now I'm going to punish them too. Watch what he does. This is the Lord's declaration. The land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, and I will make it a ruin forever. Well, after many warnings, the northern tribes of Israel have been defeated and carried off into slavery 
as an example, but Judah wouldn't turn back. The term is they were uh, dispersed or uh, diaspora, right? Uh, these tribes would never come back in the same way back to Israel. And now Judah, the southern kingdom and the, uh, and the south, it's going to, they have these two tribes and they have the great city of Jerusalem, right? Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah pleaded with the people of Judah to come back to the one true God, Yahweh, and to turn from their sin, repent for hundreds of years. Now, God warned the people, listen, unless you stop your sin, I will raise up other godless countries and come. they will come and they will ravage you. They will kill many of you, take many of you off into captivity to their foreign countries. But people did not turn their hearts back to God and away from sin. So God's judgment comes. And you can read about that in 2 Chronicles. It's this long, slow decline of God's people. But God was gracious in that he would not leave his people in, in captivity. He would bring them back home. Now let's read, jump to chapter 29 of Jeremiah. You're going to hear something familiar. Look at verse 10 for just a moment. Still the prophet. He says, for this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. In other words, I'll bring you back home and you can be my people. But for 70 years, God makes that promise that after you've been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, I will bring you back establish you, you will be my people. A remnant, not everyone will come home. And he said, you will prosper there in captivity and I will bring you home and I will bring you back. You got this picture? They're about to be sent off. So what's kind of funny with this next verse is, you know how I said people take single verses out of context? This verse is on plaques probably in your home. It's, and it's not a bad verse. It's, it's like, texted and tweeted and posted thousands of times a day. One of the most texted scriptures out there. And yet, I do not think it means what you think it means. Watch what verse 11 says. You'll, you'll see it. God says, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and I will come and pray and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration, and I will restore you, your fortunes, and gather you from all the nations and the places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place for which I deported you. They, live, they leave the deported part off the, the plaques, right? Now you get why you need context for a verse. People claim verse 11 all the time without the demand for repentance. God is saying, you must repent. They only want the blessing. But for most people, don't want to turn from their sin, right? Repentance means turning from your sin. They only want the blessing of God, but most people don't want to turn from their sin, and certainly they don't want judgment and consequences for their sin like these Hebrews that are going to be drug off for 70 years to a different nation, a godless 
pagan king is going to rule over them in a foreign land. By the way, you know that 70-year time frame. You may not think you do, but if you know Bible stories at all, this is when the book of Daniel is written. This is when the book of Ezekiel is written. The, uh, you remember Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. You remember his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's fun to say, isn't it? And you hear them in the lion's den. That's, I mean, sorry, in the fiery furnace, right? That's during that 70 years of captivity. One more historical setting. I want you to get down because this is going to be a crazy ride here. I want you to get this. God had raised up the Babylonian Empire with its powerful yet wicked king named Nebuchadnezzar. The world had never seen an empire like this uh, or as much wealth and military might or even size. They were well run. And this, God gives this vision uh, to these prophets that Judah and Jerusalem are going to be destroyed, taken into captivity. Like literally blocks of the temple will be torn down so nothing is standing. It's just all rebel. Everything that's going to be able to be burned will be burned. But the Babylonians took uh, everything of value, even the holy instruments from the temple uh, in Jerusalem that Solomon had built. So everything in Jerusalem is knocked down. And check this out. They took all the educated young men and women, the good-looking people, in, in, to this new kingdom. They killed thousands upon thousands, but they took the most elite young people. They did leave a few of the poorest of the poor, not for the city, but to manage all the farmland. And they said, you're not to live in the city. Now stay with me. The Babylonian empire was massive. No one was big enough or powerful enough to take on this empire except for God. Seventy years of captivity. Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, so grandson, 70 years later, is killed and the empire is overthrown. But how that happened is just mind-blowing. Picture this. On the night in 539 B.C., a relatively small Persian army from what is now Iran diverted the mighty Euphrates, literally dried it up in a way to a manageable death. And this small Persian army, this small force, comes over the wall of the temple of the city of Babylon and they there's not much of a war they overthrow the king they kill only the very top main officials and the king the new king of Persia simply claimed the rightful place of being the Babylonian new emperor but he's Persian his name was Cyrus as in Billy Ray it's one of history's strange oddities that this powerful country, Babylon, was overthrown by a much smaller, much weaker force, the Persians. History looks at this as almost a bloodless war. Things simply went on uh, at, with this new King Cyrus. Now, here's why I want you to see this. One of the things we're going to see here, and we're going to see over and over, and we're going to talk about a ton in this series, is God's sovereignty. It simply means his absolute power and his ability to do anything he wants, listen, according to his will. It's why we call a regular king a sovereign. You go, hey, whatever you want, right? Who's our sovereign king? Jesus, right? Amen? In this series, 
over and over, you're going to see God's sovereignty at work, kind of behind the scenes. Both at the giant massive levels of macro armies and kings and nations, but also at the little bitty individual level. You're going to see God orchestrate his plans using everything in the world to bring out his plans. And here's the thing I want you to get. Write this down. There is nothing outside God that can force his hand. There is nothing outside God that can force his hand. Let that thought sink in. There's no force. There's no gravity. There's nothing out there that you can think of that can go, God was going, well, I was going to do this, but now I've got to do this because that happened. You see what I mean? What does that mean? God is in complete control. God is in complete control control. And yet that brings up some tremendous hard questions, difficult questions. Like people say, hey, if God is in complete control, why does he allow evil to exist, right? That's a problem. Or if that God is not powerful enough to control evil, doesn't that mean he's not sovereign? By the way, if that's the case, uh, he wouldn't be sovereign. So we're going to dive into that stuff as well. How do we know uh, as God's people, as Christians, to live in this sovereignty. That is the hard thing. We, we can't see all the moving pieces. We can't see behind the scenes, right? We can't see all the pieces that God sees and orchestrates. We only get these little tiny glimpses in our life and then here in Scripture. We get to see these. But, it's, uh, but think of it this way. God is outside of space and time and matter. Indeed, he created all of those things. He sees all men's hearts totally laid bare. From your birth to your death. We cannot see it all, though we, we try. We want to see, God, how do we trust you? But we don't see all those things. What do we do? We trust him. Even when it seems like everything is falling apart. We follow Jesus with our heart. And we love those people around us as best we can through Christ. And get this, when dealing with God's sovereignty, the thing is not to try to understand how it all works, but to have that faith that our sovereign God is in control. And listen to me, and to relax in his sovereignty. To say, God, no matter what happens, I know you are in control. How do we... We play into all this stuff, like our decisions, our choices, our own will. How does that play? Well, we'll look at that, but here's what we've got to see, at least on the surface. God is using it all to bring about His glory and our good. He's using it to build His plan. And what do we know His plan to be? Listen to me. To bring about the salvation of His people through Jesus and, and that ultimately God would be glorified for saving us and for who he is. You with me? Back to Billy Ray. Here we go. Mr. Cyrus, this is before Ezra comes on the scene. 
But Ezra records this picture of sovereignty for us because it's so massive. This is about to blow your mind, but I want you to see something first. This is going to, to freak us all out a little bit. I hope you get this. Cyrus has just become king in this bloodless or almost bloodless uh, defeat of Babylon. He meets with all the high court officials of Babylon, right? He just simply takes the throne. And as he meets with the prime minister of Babylon, an old wise man that had consulted Babylonian kings since the time of Nebuchadnezzar. He's been on the payroll for 70 years. And this old wise prime minister, who happens to be a Hebrew, says, oh wise king, I want you to see something. A prophet, a Hebrew prophet says something, and I think you need to hear this. Now here's what I want you to watch and listen for. This is what this is going to sound like to a king on his first day in office. Verse 24, this is what the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb says. I am the Lord who made everything, who stretched out the heavens by myself, who alone spread out the earth, who destroys the omens of the false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who confounds the wise and makes the knowledge of makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the message of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, now remember Jerusalem at this point is in de, uh, destroyed, she will be inhabited and to the cities of judah they will be rebuilt and i will restore their ruins now i don't know this for sure but i think that old jewish guy talking there he's saying when this was written it was a mighty nation how can it talk about being rebuilt so he continues to read this old old thing he says who says to the depths of the sea be dry and I will dry up your rivers. Remember how he had just got his armies across on a dry river. Who says to Cyrus, my shepherd, he will fulfill all my pleasures. Remember this is God saying this. Who says to Cyrus, my shepherd, he will fulfill all my pleasures. God saying this. And says to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt and the temple, its foundations will be laid. Now some of you have gotten this already. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Now if you're paying attention, this old Jewish prophet, this old Jewish prime minister of Babylon to Cyrus has just read Cyrus's name in a Jewish prophecy written hundreds of years before the guy was born listen to that not only that before babylon and persia even existed as empires this guy had to just like be pooping his pants here you know it's like can you say that as a pastor okay this had to weigh heavy on this pagan king by the way the man we think read the scripture to King Cyrus was none other than Daniel. Let that mess with your mind. 
So now, after all that, let's start with the first four verses of Ezra. You ready? Here we are. I've come to the start of my talk. Here it is. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, talking about the captives, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, livestock, and along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. Here's what I want you to see. God's work, God works in every man's heart to bring about his plans. How many men does he work in? Every man's heart, even the heart of kings. And in this case, an evil pagan king to bring about his plans and his purposes. Now write this down. God works in the heart of all men by his spirit to bring about his purposes. God works in the heart of all men by his spirit to bring about his purposes. I'll let that sink in a minute. God's sovereignty. God orchestrated this return to bring his people back to the land of Israel. He cares about the nation, but he cares about every individual. More importantly, the purpose of these people to bring about the birth of the Messiah, the Christ, would be 400 years after this point. If this didn't go down, Jesus is not going to be born. Do you see this? He's working hundreds of years before they were deported. He had already said this in the book of, uh, of Isaiah. You see, all of Scripture in the Old Testament points like an arrow to the sovereign grace that God is going to offer through Christ Jesus. Now, we all wrestle with this. As we, we look at this, we'll look through it in coming weeks, but notice that Cyrus is pagan. He's messed up. This king, he's evil. And yet God moved in him in spirit to take action that would glorify God. Does that mean God caused the evil to take place? Absolutely not. But here's the thing we are going to continually to uncover in this series. God uses everything to bring about his purposes. A touchstone verse we, we use to understand this. We hit this, I bet, a dozen times every year. It's Romans 8.28. Because it says this truth. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. I'm using the NASB version on that one here because I want you to see these words. God causes all things to work together. 
He is not the author of evil. Evil is not a creation. It is less than creation. Does that make sense? But in God's sovereignty and power, he uses these awful things that awful people do to bring about his glory and our good. That is, if we are God's people and we are called according to his purpose. That would be Christian. That'd be you. That'd be the elect. That's, that's you, right? So God moves King Cyrus to act to open the floodgates and allow the Hebrew people to return to Judah and Jerusalem. Now next week we're going to see what their response is. That's where we're going to dive in next week. Even, even in that, we'll see how both our sin and our repentance of our sin plays into God's hands. Well, let me close with a few thoughts for you to chew on this week. The Apostle Peter as he was talking about our salvation through Christ Jesus, this atoning work of Jesus on the cross says this about the Old Testament prophets, all of them, and history books like Ezra. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation in through Christ, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you. He's actually talking to you, Christians. Those prophets searched and carefully investigated. They inquired what, what time or what circumstances, now look at this next line, the Spirit of Christ within them. Now I want you to see the Old Testament prophets had the Spirit of Christ in them writing about the salvation that would come through Jesus. That should blow your mind. It was indicating when he, when he testified in advance, Christ is testifying about himself through these Old Testament prophets. Do you see that? The sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So Jesus is writing about himself before he's even born. Do you see how that works? It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, talking about the prophets, they're going, we're not writing this for us. These things have now been announced to you. Talking about you. Who am I talking about? You. This is for you. Through those who preach the gospel, that'd be me. To you, by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. I love this line. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. You see, we can look at Scripture, especially old stuff, and we go, oh, that's dry. That's old stories. But what I want you to get through this series is that it is life-giving if the Holy Spirit is in you. It leads us straight to Jesus. It leads us to the cross. Angels, it says, long to get just a tiny glimpse of what the Holy Spirit will illuminate to you. You see, if you've lost spiritual ground, if you are not where you once were in your relationship with Jesus, the enemy, listen to me, is winning the battle, but has already lost the war. He has somehow convinced you that mediocrity in your Christian walk is somehow okay. He has somehow taken you out of the battle, but what I want you to know is that the war 
We need you. Even though the battle is assured, I mean, the war is won, I I happen to know that the Holy Spirit of God himself wants you to reclaim the lost ground in your life. To come back to Jesus and offer your entire life, not a part of it, your entire life to him in service until his soon return. Until he takes us back to heaven to be with him for eternity. Amen? Listen, listen, I get it. I do. Some of you slip just a little bit. and You know, it's not like I'm in big sin or anything. I'm just, it's like I'm just a little bit not where I was. But, it's, but it is a big deal. Jesus is calling you to action. As we continue this year with D3, Disciplers, Discipling Disciples, it's time to lay down your own plans to put your shoulder to the wheel and to give. Give of your strength. Give of your time. Give of your money. I'm praying for those of you who have lost spiritual ground will get back into this game. Grab your sword, fight alongside the rest of us that are, are fighting hard. One more thing and we'll, then we'll pray. Some of you have slipped a ton. Like you are still a Christian. I'm not saying that. At least you think you're saved and I hope you are too. But, but you're not sure that you can reclaim the lost ground. Uh, maybe it's been so long that that you really serve Jesus, or maybe sin has just ravaged your life, even physically or emotionally in your life. Maybe addiction or idolatry has just eaten you up, has ruled you, and you have this nagging thought, I I hear you, Paul, but I don't think I can do it. Here's the good thing. You simply have to start following Jesus again. Repent! Repent of your sins. Start there. Say no to what you understand to be wrong through Scripture. Say no to the sin in your life. And once you do that, start saying yes to what Jesus called you to do. Part of that is being here every week. Part of that is being in your Bible every day. Praying and serving and being a part as you see more opportunities with D3 and small groups and serving teams plug into this family. I want you to know right now, God is calling his people to repent, to return to him, to reclaim, listen to me, ground that has been lost to the enemy. To say no to sin and yes to him. Is that you? Did you mark yes that you have lost spiritual ground? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer is a humble one that just says simply I'm sorry for my sin if you're a Christian you just pray something like this God I'm sorry for my sin and I repent listen to God's still small voice in your in your spirit is he calling you to repentance it is is it some little thing like just not made church a priority if it's just some little thing in your heart like you go well just just hadn't been real close listen it's a big deal when you lose spiritual ground to the enemy the enemy wins eternity hangs in the balance maybe maybe you're saved i'm not arguing that but those people around you that god has called you to minister to your little slippage of faith, your little time uh, uh, of saying, I don't know if I, I'm cut out to serve as part of the church. Listen to me. The battle is raging around you. 
It's like if I could grab the front of, of your uniform, if you're a soldier, and yell into you over the, the, the sound of the battle to say, wake up, soldier, wake up. Would you just pray right now, ask God, God, is there something I need to do to repent? Have I lost ground? Just pray and ask God about that. And for some of you Christians, it's been a big slip. You have let secret sin into your life. Maybe it's an idolatry. Maybe a good thing, but it's taken the place of God. Like maybe it's family or, I don't know, or promotions at work or money. Those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but like, have you made a God of something in your life other than the one true God? That's a big sin. Maybe that's developed in some kind of addiction like a sexual sin. Maybe it's, it's a sin of, of worry. Maybe it's a different kind of sin altogether. Listen. Just repent not right now. God will restore the wasted years. Some of you are like, I don't know if God can forgive me of that. Listen, if you're a Christian, know that Jesus' blood is enough. It's enough. Let His blood be enough for your sin. It is enough. Like, why are you making it not enough? And then finally, if you're not a believer, this is your chance to become one. Is God calling you from death to life? Is He saying, come, follow me? I think He is. Can you hear that? He's saying, turn from your sin. I will make you new. He wants to give you new life. If that's the case, just simply respond and say yes. And again, maybe you're like, well, I, I'm too... I'm too bad. I can't, I can't become a Christian. Uh, listen, it's because Jesus died on the cross. His sacrifice pays for your sin. Simply believe and confess. Believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and confess that with your lips and you will be saved. That's what Scripture says. Or maybe, maybe it's you that you're going, well, I... I I want to be saved, but I think I'm a pretty good guy. I think I've got everything pretty much under control. Like, like are you going to get to heaven on that? Like, you're going with that plan? Like, you've been pretty good? Like, you, you bought some Girl Scout cookies and, and you hadn't killed anybody and, and you're nice to your neighbors? Listen to me. If that's your plan of salvation, you're like on your way to hell quick. Because here's what we know. Jesus himself said, I am the only way. He says, you want to get to God the Father, you come through me. And you can say, well, that seems kind of limiting. It's not really your question, is it? If this God is all sovereign, all powerful, God is making a way. He has given his son to you his death on the cross 
So simply wake up to that fact. So if you want to be a Christian, you simply do this. You say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And confess that with your lips. And when I say believe, I'm not saying like just some mental ascension. I'm saying at the core of you, it should change who you are. Here's the good news. If you just said that, you are changed legally in front of God. You are no longer a sinner. You have the righteousness of Jesus. Your sins have been forgiven. So repent. Stop sinning. And listen, although you're changed spiritually, physically, you're still going to want to sin. You're still going to want these things. But So just say, God, start to remake me. We call that the sanctification. God remaking us into the image of God, slowly but surely getting rid of all the crud in our lives, all the sin as we repent and follow after Him. We become more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. So just make that a prayer. God, would you make me more like Jesus? Help me to follow you. And if you're just becoming a Christian right now, we want to baptize you. We won't do it today, but we'll do it soon. In baptism, it doesn't save you. It's just this picture of like the old you buried going under the water and then the picture of you coming out of the water. It's an outward symbol of an inward change in your heart. So wherever you're at on that spectrum of things we just prayed, you end your prayer like this. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me your son. Thank you for the offer of love you have given us in his death on the cross. We long to see you. And end your prayer like this. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.
your life. Maybe it's an idolatry, maybe a good thing, but it's taken the place of God. Like maybe it's family or I don't know, or promotions at work or money. Those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but like have you made a God of something in your life other than the one true God? That's a big sin. Maybe that's developed in some kind of addiction like a sexual sin. Maybe it's, it's a sin of, of worry. Maybe it's a different kind of sin altogether. Listen, just repent not right now. God will restore the wasted years. Some of you are like, I don't know if God can forgive me of that. Listen, if you're a Christian, know that Jesus' blood is enough. It's enough. Let His blood be enough for your sin. It is enough. Like, why are you making it not enough? And then finally, if you're not a believer... This is your chance to become one. Is God calling you from death to life? Is He saying, come, follow me? I think He is. Can you hear that? He's saying, turn from your sin. I will make you new. He wants to give you new life. If that's the case, just simply respond and say yes. And again, maybe you're like, well, I, I'm, too, I'm too bad. I can't, I can't become a Christian Listen, it's because Jesus died on the cross. His sacrifice pays for your sin. Simply believe and confess. Believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and confess that with your lips and you will be saved. That's what Scripture says. Or maybe, maybe it's you that you're going, well, I... I I want to be saved, but I think I'm a pretty good guy. I think I've got everything pretty much under control. Like, like, are you going to get to heaven on that? Like, you're going with that plan? Like, you've been pretty good? Like, you, you bought some Girl Scout cookies, and, and you hadn't killed anybody, and, and you're nice to your neighbors? Listen to me. If that's your plan of salvation, you're like on your way to hell quick. Because here's what we know. Jesus himself said, I am the only way. He says, you want to get to God the Father, you come through me. And you can say, well, that seems kind of limiting. It's not really your question, is it? If this God is all sovereign, all powerful, God is making a way. He has given his son to you, his death on the cross. So simply wake up to that fact. So if you want to be a Christian, you simply do this. You say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And confess that with your lips. And when I say believe, I'm not saying like just some mental ascension. I'm saying at the core of you, it should change who you are. There's the good news. If you just said that, you are changed legally in front of God. You are no longer a sinner. You have the righteousness of Jesus. Your sins have been forgiven, so repent. 
Stop sinning. And listen, although you're changed spiritually, physically, you're still going to want to sin. You're still going to want these things. But So just say, God, start to remake me. We call that the sanctification. God remaking us into the image of God, slowly but surely getting rid of all the crud in our lives, all the sin as we repent and follow after him. We become more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. So just make that a prayer. God, would you make me more like Jesus? Help me to follow you. And if you're just becoming a Christian right now, we want to baptize you. We won't do it today, but we'll do it soon. And baptism, it doesn't save you. It's just this picture of like the old you buried going under the water and then the picture of you coming out of the water. It's an outward symbol of an inward change in your heart. So wherever you're at on that spectrum of things we just prayed, you end your prayer like this. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me your son. Thank you for the offer of love you have given us in his death on the cross. We long to see you. And end your prayer like this. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.